This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Laura Johnston, your days of skiing may be at an end. It's supposed to warm up in a big way this week. You better hit the slopes this weekend. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, Chris Ranowski. Is next week spring? Do we have it? Is it finally here? Is our long winter finally over? <laughs> we hope so. And pretty soon daylight saving. Yeah, I know. My favorite day of the entire year. <laughs> as always. I, I hate when we turn the clocks back. I love when we turn them forward. Okay, let's begin. What is the best way for the media to deal with the outrageous statements that candidates like Josh Mandel make in social media? Statements that are largely to garner media attention in the style of Donald Trump. Jane Cahoon, we're wrestling with this in our newsroom, and it's worth having the discussion here. Josh Mandel made the ridiculous claim yesterday that we should reopen Ohio, get rid of the mask mandates, which is basically an argument for death. You know, if we all stop wearing masks, if, if people go back to the way it was, we will see death. The health experts are clear on this. The science is clear. But Josh Mandel says, let's do it because he wanted to get attention. We didn't write a story about this because Josh Mandel right now is basically nobody. He's a guy that wants to be a senator in two years, but he has no standing. And we don't want to chase our tail until we come up with a policy on how we're going to deal with nonsense like this. So what does everybody think we should do when, when people like Josh Mandel say dangerously stupid things on social media just to get attention? And Chris, go ahead and point out, he's getting attention on this podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're talking about him right now. So I guess, I guess some more uh, organic media for the Mandel campaign. You know, I, I don't know that we can claim we always handle every single thing the right way. And, and maybe there's no crystal clear, like right or wrong. But I think probably a good assumption to start with when when evaluating these statements is that just because Josh Mandel says something provocative or outrageous, it, it doesn't mean it's news. So, you know, yes, for example, he he came up with this uh, statement on uh, Wednesday and it wasn't surprising at all because it fits, as you said, with his attempt to align himself with with Trump. And it also fits in with his recent attacks on on Governor DeWine who he thinks is is too squishy. So I'd say those were a couple of things we considered along with, as you pointed out, that he's been out of public office and he doesn't currently hold an office. He's he's a candidate and his whole game here is drawing attention to himself. Now, you know, a couple of journalists did tweet about what he said. And of course, he retweeted those, you know, to try to draw more attention uh, to himself. And then he put out a follow-up tweet that was really misleading, you know, blaming DeWine for 
overestimating the number of coronavirus cases that we were going to see in Ohio. In fact, what he was citing was one of those models that predicted, you know, tens of thousands of cases in the absence of any mitigation measures. So I did see at least one journalist like call him out on Twitter for that misrepresentation, which I which I think is a good thing. But, you know, a couple of TV stations did stories on on his statement. So it did end up getting a fair amount of attention. But I just think, you know, with a candidate like him, it's a much better service to our readers to do stories like the one Seth Richardson did, this analysis he did on Tuesday that took a broader look at how both Mandel and his opponent so far in the primary, former Ohio GOP chairman Jane Timken, how they're trying to out-Trump each other, even if it means, you know, throwing their fellow Republicans on, under the bus. So those, I think, provide readers with more context and valuable Right. But but if you look at the four years of Donald Trump, every time he said something outrageous on Twitter, it, it flamed everybody and it was covered everywhere. And I think a lot of journalists would have the same conversation today. What's the right way to do that? Because it's not a he said, she said. Josh Mandel would love us to write. Josh Mandel says the state should get rid of its mask mandate. Health experts say he's wrong. It's not that. He's out of his mind making that claim. He would cause people to get sick and die just to get his news item. And I, and I, I do think Seth's analysis of that was just about perfect. He did it exactly as we should. And it makes me wonder... If we are going to cover something like this, should it always be an analysis so that it's not he said, she said. It's Josh Mandel made a statement that if it were followed would lead to Ohioans dying in larger numbers because he wanted to get attention because he's trying to out Trump Jane Timken. That's a very different way of covering it. And it frames it in a way that I'm more comfortable with than using our very limited resources to chase our tail writing up his nonsense. Well, it's an easy story to write, which is why you see a lot of people grab onto it because, you know, saying that Josh Mandel made an outrageous statement about masks is, is an easy headline. And, and look, we have to, we have to understand that, that, that nobody, nobody knew how to game the media better than Donald Trump. I mean, it was, it was his superpower and, and it was, it was really frustrating to watch irresponsible media. And I'm I'm not talking about partisan media here. I'm talking about just like the media just continue to fall into that trap every day. You know, there was that whole, that whole notion that people were just covering his Twitter account. And it was, it was, you you put yourself into a cycle of just reacting to everything someone says without really stepping back and saying like, is this worth our time? Is this, is there something else that we should be writing about that that is more important. And, and I and I think a lot of these up and coming conservatives have taken note of that. If you look at a Matt Gates or you look at a that Marjorie Taylor Greene, I mean, most of most of what they do has nothing to do with talking about how they're going to serve people. It's all about flaming culture war stuff. And so I mean I knew I, I mean I knew exactly I knew somebody in this state was going to call on De- DeWine to end the mask mandate the minute Abbott did that in Texas and the Mississippi governor announced that they were going to do it there. I, I mean, it was just a matter of time. And so, you well, know, it happened the minute we finished recording yesterday. You said, here it is. You mean right. you found it almost but, immediately. But, but to give people an idea, you know, a little peek behind the curtain of how the sausage is made here, you know, we get 
I mean, nobody sends out more press releases than Rob Portman. And, <laughs> and I mean, I'm not saying that as, I mean, he has a very good communication staff. They put out multiple press releases every day, sometimes to the point where I get annoyed seeing more press releases from Rob Portman. And we don't write about every one of those. And, and, and Twitter and, and social media, it gives, it gives candidates access to the public in a way that we don't really have to. I mean, you know, it, it used to be you'd send a press release, you make a judgment call. Sometimes the PR people would call you and say, hey, are you going to cover this, et cetera, et cetera. They have a direct line to voters now. And so. Yeah, but we're the big platform in the right, state. We are we're big the platform. biggest and a lot of people pay attention to what we do. And, and, and we, we do need to firm up our policy on this. And I, I mean, we've been talking about it for a couple of days and I thought it would be good for the podcast audience to hear where we're at. We haven't resolved this yet, but what we know is we don't want to do it like it's been done in the past. We do not want to give our platform over to people spouting nonsense just to get on our platform. So we'll keep talking about it. Can I add one thing here? Laura Johnston. I just feel like this is kind of like the the lottery or the, you know, going to the casino or even like a toddler. Like every time you give into it, it's just going to get worse, right? Like the idea is we complain that these politicians don't talk about substantive enough issues, but if they get all the reward they want by putting out ridiculous statements and we keep writing about it, we as the media in general, then they win, right? Like they, they, they don't have to talk about anything real. So I think you were right, Chris, in what you were saying about the analysis and putting it in perspective. And if we want to talk about like a, a wave of people who want less restriction and more death, then that's a different issue. But just putting out the press release and he said is just like giving a toddler a cookie well, when they find. I, I think the more apt analogy is the rat pushing the button to get a piece <laughs> of food and so in that analogy, Josh Mandel is the rat pushing the button to get the news coverage. And we just have to, you're right. I think that's a reward that we don't want to provide because this is dangerous stuff that he's doing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we finally have an answer on whether 19-year-old Arthur Keith was running away from police when an officer shot and killed him last year? Chris Ranowski, that's what the kids who saw this go down seem to be telling us. What do we know now? So yesterday, columnist Layla Atassi and reporter Olivia Mitchell were granted the ability to look at the autopsy report by the, the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner. And what it revealed is that Arthur Keith died uh, from a single gunshot that entered his back and, and struck him in the, in the ribs. And so just to analyze that a little bit, I think it looks like he was either in the process of running away or had it had turned and was headed away from the police officer, the CMHA police officer when he was shot and eventually died. So it does lend a little bit of, of credence to what the, the child witnesses told us about what they saw that day when he was shot by the housing police officer. The, there were a bunch of children at the King Kennedy boys and girls club who were traumatized because they saw all or part of this. They saw the, paramedics working on him to try and revive him and it was an awful scene and we've talked to them what what's odd is this is months later an officer shot somebody in the back which is never okay and we really have not heard anything from the people that are charged with investigating these things if i shot you in the back i'd be in jail i mean mm-hmm. there'd be no doubt about it i'd be in jail where is that kind of vigor in the investigation I don't know. I mean, that seems to be what what happens with these, though, that gets really complicated is that 
you know, we now our, our prosecutor's office, which would normally hear, uh, you know, the homicide and and present it to a grand jury. There's an extra step that was added by prosecutor Michael O'Malley, who campaigned on the idea that he would send all of these police shooting cases to the attorney general's office for special prosecutor to investigate it as well. So, you know, you you add a when you add a bureaucratic layer to this, it it does make the process take more time. But you're right. You know, this this is illustrative of the double standard of homicides, which this is a homicide. You know, I mean, another person killed another person. So, you know, it is technically a homicide. But but there is a standard for police that exists that is different than the average citizen. And and and, and it's right to point that out. But my point is, we just found out. For sure, he was shot in the back. But the investigators have known he was shot in the back for months. I mean, it's it's where is the action on this? And this is the kind of thing that could launch protests and and all sorts of things. I mean, a young black man in Cleveland was shot in the back by a police officer. Well, I think what you're pointing to is that there has to be the will to prosecute police officers. And and, you know, we we have seen the attorney general's office charge police officers. They did so down in Columbus. They charged a police officer down there with murder. But more often than not, police tend to not get charged in these things. You know, we I mean, we have a very significantly large high profile case here from a couple of years ago where a kid got killed and and the police officer did not get charged. And and so it seems it seems like there's a lot of effort that goes into trying to explain away why police shot someone. And and that is not something that average citizen, we don't get that. We'll, we'll have to pay attention to what Dave Yost does here. I mean, he was shot in the back. That is the automatic red flag that something's wrong. And, and, and it's worth pointing out that that they there there has been a lot of gymnastics in, in keeping us away from any type of surveillance footage. King Kennedy and, and CMHA is a public body. And when we requested surveillance video from them, they claimed that they basically turned over their entire surveillance system to which violate, which, violate which public is, records law. You're not allowed to do that. Right. And, and so there's and so what they're saying is like, well, we would give it to you, but we gave it to police and it's really not in our possession right now. And then you contact Cleveland police and they say, well, this is evidence in an ongoing investigation. And, and it was given yeah. to us by a different public entity. We can't give it to you. And so we're caught in this loop between these public agencies that are refusing to well, give stuff, something. Yeah. That might illuminate the the public's you know it also outrage on the points out that we shouldn't have all these little police departments. CMHA, why does it have its own police department? If Cleveland police could do it all, and then you'd have one one group. I mean, they're just they're not as professional as other police departments, and clearly in this case, they're showing a lack of professionalism. We should also point out the medical examiner withheld this autopsy report, claiming it wasn't finished, and the dates on it show that it was finished weeks ago. So they're complicit in keeping us from getting at this story as well. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish digging in on his claim that he oversees the sheriff in the government structure voters created 10 years ago? What happened to the charter amendment we just passed that was aimed at making the sheriff independent? Laura Johnston, I, we talked earlier. I just don't see where Budish can claim what he's claiming. But what did he do yesterday to make this even uglier? Yeah, he's doubling down. He's saying what the council wants to do, which is to codify what they believe the charter amendment says, that the sheriff is not need to answer to the executive. He says that's unworkable. He called it radical, impractical, maybe unconstitutional. 
So he is really throwing down. He sent out a news release saying the proposal would saddle the executive with the responsibility for problems in the sheriff's department, but providing him with no authority to address such problems. Exactly. That's what the voters <laughs> voted on. Look, there was a move to make the, the sheriff elected to get him away from Armin Budish. Remember, Armin Budish tried to turn the jail into a profit-making enterprise. He turned it into a dangerous place where eight inmates died in a year. I mean, this is blood on his hands kind of thing. So so there was some opposition to making the, the sheriff elected. So what the county council put before the voters is a an amendment that Budish would appoint him, the council would affirm him or her, and then the only way to remove him or her is with a vote of the council. So that is independence. That was the entire goal of that charter change. And and he's arguing it's I just don't he didn't provide a legal opinion, did he? He just made this as a not as far as I know. He just put out like scenarios which he says would be unworkable. And what other interesting thing about the amendment, the charter amendment, is that this term purposely runs like four years and the opposite four years of the executive. So like the new if a new executive is elected, that term would continue. The executive doesn't get to pick a new sheriff. So yeah, that's independence. But Council wants to purposely spell out that the sheriff would independently fulfill his or her duties. And they're they're waiting till March 9th to vote on whether to confirm Chris Byland as the new sheriff so that they have time to make these changes. But in the meantime, obviously, they're arguing over them. And Budish is saying, you know, if an officer uses excessive force, the executive could be accused of hiring the wrong sheriff or failing to provide sufficient resources or training, but he can't require additional training or discipline. So he's saying, I'm going to get all the blame and I can't do anything about it. No, but, 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 but I don't even see how that's true. I mean, basically what we're setting up is you pick him and then it's up to the county council if they think he hasn't done a good job to remove him, that they have to have eight votes. So he's not accountable at that point. I mean, he's, he has to provide a budget like he provides for prosecutors and judges who are all independent bodies in this in this county and and he isn't accountable if he picks a bad sheriff he is accountable for making a bad selection but it's not the the voters don't want him to have the power to remove him especially because he's played politics with these positions clearly based on what we've seen it's odd that he's making this argument after voters approve that charter change this whole move was to get the sheriff out from under his thumb so that the sheriff could operate the jail and do the job appropriately. I, I mean, it seems like the council is doing exactly what the voters approved. And Budish is still standing there saying, no, it's mine. It's mine. It's mine. Bizarre. I, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many errors can one congressman make in his campaign finance reports, which grew huge based on his constant public defenses of Donald Trump? Jane Cahoon, we are, of course, talking about Jim Jordan. And wow, were his campaign finance reports screwed up. <laughs> yeah, perhaps his campaign considers this a good problem to have, you know. But seriously, the, the Federal Election Commission this week asked the campaign committee to explain really large accounting discrepancies between reports that it filed several years ago and then corrected reports that they filed earlier this year. Many of these discrepancies exceed $100,000, and one of them even exceeded $900,000. So the FEC sent several letters to the campaign committee. They cited at least 10 examples of 
like increases or decreases in disbursements or receipts. And as I said, sometimes adding up to hundreds of thousands of, of dollars. Now, the campaign says no money was ever missing. It, it just blamed these inconsistencies on the trouble they had adjusting to the skyrocketing number of donations Jordan got as his national profile grew. Uh, they, they said the errors occurred when the, when the former campaign treasurer inadvertently double reported certain expenses. And, and when they discovered it, they, they hired this outside expert to conduct a, a comprehensive audit and, and file all these, you know, amended reports. So um, our Washington reporter, Sabrina Eaton, she, she's written over recent years how Jordan's fundraising has really exploded during the time Donald Trump was president. And, you know, Jordan was often in the national spotlight, as you said, as his chief defender. And um, I thought this was really astonishing. She cited some figures like during the two-year period before Trump took office, Jordan raised like $733,000 or so for his reelection, you know, spent a little over $400,000 and ended up with $1.3 million in his treasury. And then it grew, you know, later. But from 2019 through 2020, he raised 18 million, over 18 million, almost 19 million, spent over 13 million and finished with more than 6 million in the bank. So you can see like how that increased. And at that point, he used to have mostly Ohio donors, but at that point, California eclipsed Ohio as his top state for donors and, and people in Florida gave him almost as much. All right. So. But this is still basically a spreadsheet. I, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I just am not buying the, oh, I got so many donations, I couldn't keep track of them. I mean, money comes in, you put it in the spreadsheet, you fill out the forms, you punch it out. This isn't like they're doing it on paper or with an abacus. It's a spreadsheet. So I'm, I, I think it's a very convenient fiction to say, oh, I got so many donations, I couldn't keep track of them all. So my reports for years are screwed up. And I think there's something else going on here. And how do you and they say there's no money missing. Well, how, how do you know if you can't count, <laughs> if you can't count and you can't keep track of everything that's coming in and going out? How do you know there's no money missing? I mean, we've had other politicians who had that problem of money yeah, missing just, because they hired the wrong person. But um, I, we'll just have to see what the FEC, how I, they sort it out. Can I ask a question? Chris Wernesky. What happens now? Like who? So you said the FEC investigates this and then what? Like, I think they can refer it to other authorities if they find something that they think is not on the up and up. Okay. So it goes to a federal agency that will then decide whether to contact law enforcement? I think so. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not buying oh, so many. I couldn't keep track. There's something weird going on. I mean, if you look at them too, it's a lot. And they're missing by a hundred grand. That's a whole lot of money to lose track of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, I'm just not buying it. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is President Joe Biden's decree on ending private federal prisons affecting the privately operated one in Youngstown? Chris Ranowski, this is a pretty big quandary for the Marshal Service. Yeah, this was kind of strange because uh, CoreCivic, the, the company that runs the private jail over near Youngstown, what known as the Northeast Ohio Correctional Center, it seemed a little bit like they were taken by surprise by this, but the federal government is not going to renew its contract to hold federal prisoners who are awaiting trial. And 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 frankly, we didn't think that they, it was going to end because this is this is technically a state facility. 
But what happens is, is that the federal government and the U.S. Marshal Service specifically uh, enters into contracts with jails all over the country, whether it's sometimes county jails, but, but they did here in one centralized location. And the, and, the, and the Biden administration says that it's not going to renew this contract. And the problem that this creates is that there are 800 inmates that are currently there that, that the marshal service is now going to have to find somewhere to put. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a problem that, that a lot of defense attorneys are saying, hey, like these jails were, you know, convenient for families of criminal defendants. Uh, to come and visit. It, it makes our jobs harder because we're going to have to travel farther maybe to see our clients. I, it, it just does, it raises a lot of logistical problems for a lot of different parties involved in this process. And, and, and I don't know, it's interesting. The, the, the federal government does pay jails a lot of money to house prisoners. I, I, I don't know if it happened in Ohio, but years ago it, in, in my part of the country where I grew up in rural parts of the country, a lot of counties were building bigger county jails so they could house federal prisoners and actually make money. And that's how they were paying for their jails, basically. Is yeah, it, they did that it, here in Bedford before the whole thing changed. Right. The, the scary thing about this is with Armin Budish's penchant for trying to make money on the jail, you just hope he doesn't raise his hand and say, hey, bring him here. We'll take the big crowding problem again. Our jail does not have space. And so, what it, I mean, to, I mean, they, well, would have, they, space that they took him out of there. Because of the scandalous conditions that Armin Budish had allowed to be created. Well, there. keep in mind that there is a way that they could do this here, which, but it would require them releasing local people charged locally from, you know, they'd have to let people out of jail in order to make room for federal inmates, which is something that I have seen done as well, you know, because, you know, why, why keep an inmate in the jail that is costing the county money when you can put one in there that is gaining the county money? Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did the Ohio Senate take a second step in protecting Ohioans from a very corrupt House Bill 6? Jane Cahoon, they, a few weeks ago, got rid of the decoupling provision that would have given First Energy more than a billion dollars over 10 years on our backs. Now they're taking shot at the nuclear bailout that would have cost us another billion dollars. <laughs> Correct. And uh, it's important to note that this is just the Ohio Senate that the House would still have to act here. But they did vote unanimously on Wednesday to repeal the nuclear subsidies that that were one of the central components of, of House Bill 6. And as you said, uh, I believe it was last month, they got rid of the decoupling provision that, that guaranteed First Energy a certain level of revenue based on a very you know profitable year for them. But uh, this was Senate Bill 44. It was sponsored by two Northeast Ohio lawmakers, and it does keep in place other portions of the bill. The the Senate, you know, they were kind of hanging back during the last session because I think they thought, you know, House Bill 6 originated in the House and the House should take the first step. But as we know, they dithered and did nothing by the end of the year when the session ended to repeal this bill. So now the Senate has taken some shots at it, as you said. So this is the the second one. It now goes to to the House and the House has like five different bills dealing with this. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, um, how they're going to, how they're going to deal with it. But um, he, the Senate president, Matt Huffman told, told reporters on Wednesday that, you know, during general conversations he's had with speaker, house speaker, Bob Cup, that this looks like these two things, the decoupling and the nuclear subsidies are something that they can 
agree on and that would pass by a significant majority. And Cup, in fact, told reporters he thinks there is support in the House. But, you know, who knows, you know, how they're going to deal with it, if they're going to try to pass their own bill or take up the Senate bill or, or what. And in other gigantic First Energy news, Andrew Tobias just published a story with much greater detail about that $4 million payment that went to Mr. Sam Randazzo, the former head of the the Public Utilities Commission. He was never named, but it's clearly who it is. I don't know if you have it in front of you, Jane, but it said yeah. the yes. money was to for conduct corresponding to the payment and that the person was acting at the request or for the benefit of First Energy as a consequence of receiving such payment. I mean, that all but says it was a bribe. Does that mean Randazzo has got an orange jumpsuit waiting? I and mean, that's really bad. That's $4 million yeah. to do the bidding of First Energy as the the public utilities chairman. This is blockbuster stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, if you can get through all that dense language, that that passage that you read, that that pretty much sums it up. Well, it's a dense language. It's not Andrew Tobias's dense language. His language is clear. Oh, right. I didn't mean to suggest that, but uh, (laughs) we have to quote exactly what the filing said, but people can draw their own conclusions, right? Yeah. Well, it's kind of hard to draw any other conclusions. So good stuff. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Friday to wrap up a week of news. 